Good morning. You're listening to Morning Musings on Divine Mercy Radio with Matthew Hogan. And now, here's Matthew. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Morning Musings. My name is Matthew Hogan, and today I'm going to give you the last interview with Dr. John Hasso. He is the head of the Communications and Literature Department at Ave Maria University, and today we're going to talk a little bit about Tolkien, Lewis, and the rest of the Inklings. So Lewis and Tolkien were close friends, and their essays are implicitly connected with each other. So in fact, the entire Inkling movement has a lot to say about stories in general, and it seems important to understanding some of their differences to best grasp their similarities. What do you think about that? Yeah, I know. I do think it's you know it's it, it's important to realize that the Inklings were not a homogenous group. They had differences. They had disagreements. Sometimes very passionate disagreements. I do think that all of their work on language and the imagination and creativity is fairly cohesive. But you have to make adjustments. And so, in some ways, you know, you know, some people might side more with like Owen Barfield or more with like C.S. Lewis. But there's enough overlap. I'd say most of it overlaps and interlocks. Where you can see, you know, and if you think of it this way, I think it's really helpful. You can see that Bar. Field's early theory of language that was, you know, poetic diction came out in 1928, influenced the way that all the Inklings thought about language. So if you can think of them as mutual influences, but people who might influence you, but who on some things you might disagree, then you can kind of see what's going on and you know, help you to piece together a, a workable sort of theory of the imagination that's rooted in the Inklings. And people can still disagree and, you know, tend more towards Barfield or more towards Tolkien or more towards Lewis. You know, I'm more and more I read some of the stuff, I actually kind of, you know, go back and you know, agree more with, say, someone like G.K. Chesterton, but see the fruits of his thought come to come come you know come to, to flourish in Lewis and Tolkien, even though you know Tolkien kind of obviously embraces Chesterton in some aspects, but then sort of minimizes what he calls Chestertonian fantasy in other aspects. And so, you know, as critical readers, we can look at these works and piece together something that is functional, and I'd say pretty robust, because the disagreements I think are, are fairly minor and perhaps even personal to you know me related to their personalities and the way that they interacted than, you know, really theoretical. Yeah, and one thing that I think is really interesting, too, to bring up is you talk about some of the works that influenced them, and talking specifically about Tolkien and Lewis, both of them, even if it wasn't necessarily explicit, allow religion and Christianity to kind of move their way into their works, I think, is a good way to put it. And so one of the things that I think is good to contrast is when they talk about something like the Worm Ouroboros, where mm-hmm. I forget where Edison actually stood on religion. I think you might have even said it's not entirely clear to scholars where exactly Edison was on religion, but the Worm is definitely one of those foundational works of fantasy where we see a sub-creation, where we see some yeah. of the these aspects of what makes a good story in Lewis's mind and a good fairy story in Tolkien's mind really worked mm-hmm. in to the story to make what I also have found after reading it a fascinating like mm-hmm. piece of work that speaks volumes about human nature and life in general through the lens of an entirely created from the ground up fantasy world. So like how does something like that work its way into their theories and what what do they have to say about it? Because I think a lot of times when we look at the influences of people like C.S. Lewis and Gerald Tolkien, you know, we sometimes and I've looked at sort of litanies of, of influence written by certain people from certain perspectives. And so sometimes if you're coming at it from the Catholic perspective or the Christian perspective, you know, you'll list George MacDonald, you'll list G.K. Chesterton 
but you don't list E.R. Edison or someone like William Morris, who was an atheist and a socialist, who Tolkien you know, really, really appreciated. And he talks about, you know, him, both he and Lewis talk about talk about William Morris. And E.R. Edison, I want to say he's something like a neo-pagan and not, you know, like a weak sense, you know, just kind of, but meaning he doesn't just think paganism is a neat idea. He was very much interested in, say, you know, the old pagan traditions of the Norse and things like that. And, you know, that's, that, but that was one thing that brought him into contact with Tolkien. He was translating some of the Norse sagas and, you know, Tolkien really appreciated his intellect. But also that was a point of, and his imagination, he said that the War of Boros was one of the most, you know, I'm going to say believable or credible or, you know, realistic uh, other worlds that he, he'd read. But, you know, Edison thought that Middle Earth for Tolkien was a little too soft and Tolkien thought that Mercury for E.R. Edison was, was too hard, right? And it's just interesting to see that people can have those you know, fairly fundamental religious differences, but still agree on a lot about humanity. And so one thing that tied together all of these different influences was that everyone had an impulse that something in modernity was not good for humanity, and that there was human capacities like the imagination and creativity that were being threatened and you know not for our good. And so there's this imaginative coalition, you know, this creative coalition of you know writers, but also artists, you know, that tried to make a artists in general, so visual artists, you know, literary artists, uh, people working with textiles and crafts, and they were trying to argue that modernity was, you know, the mechanization of modernity was a threat to, if not human existence, at least, you know, our humanity. Yeah, and I think there's a lot that can be said about that. But one of the things that's most important is kind of like the question of like whether human is, humans are losing wonder or not that I think yeah, is addressed yeah, yeah, no. by all of that. And I think that's one of the things that actually is fundamental to believing in God. Like before yeah. even like just being Catholic and Christian, I think believing in God requires a kind of ability to have wonder and see yeah. the beauties and the extraordinary aspects of the world around us and creation. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, you know, that's a, a very old idea slash quote going back to Plato's Theodotus, which is that philosophy begins in wonder, right? And so if you lack the ability to look around and be kind of awed by what you see, if you only think that everything is, you know, mechanical and, you know, fully explainable by reason alone, you're not going to have, yeah, as you said, you're, you know, the impetus to, to be contemplative uh, or the, the ability to put yourself, to humble yourself to the sort of awesomeness, like literally, you know, the full of, you know, the, the awe of the world, you know. And one of the things that also interested me in Lewis's work, to go back to him for a minute, is actually how he approaches film. And yeah. I hadn't actually thought of it before, even having read the essay before, but how much Lewis actually lived in a time where movies were starting to become popular and mainstream. Yeah. And his approach to film, I thought, was really interesting, especially when he talks about the adaptation of, I think it was, what's the movie, what's the book again? King, uh, Solomon's. King, King Solomon's Mind. Yes, King Solomon's Mind. And he talks about how at the end of the book, there's a particular trap and how it gets adapted into a movie they just try to make it into something big exciting a visual spectacle if you will and he thinks that really really hurts it because it takes away from in the book there was a stillness a quiet and a trap and being trapped in the darkness with the mummies was honestly many many times more terrifying for him than the movie's adaptation of oh no there's a subterranean volcano and an earthquake and all of these crazy chaotic things going on and he thinks that in some way film actually had something to do with the changes that were made. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, his line, you know, at the end of that section was, there, there's death in the camera or something like that. And, you know, as, as a fan of film and the sort of storytelling that can go along with it, I'm not sure how much I agree, you know, and his comments were fairly qualified. I do think that, you know, that are, that, that's definitely a danger in film is that as, you know, to rely too much on the visual and not on the subtlety. But, you know, I think film can achieve high art as well and high levels of storytelling. But a lot of it less than, say, even the, the writer has to do with the director and the editor. And then nowadays, you know, the special effects and whether or not they sort of, you know, assault the senses or use the medium appropriately to sort of draw the, the audience into the spectacle in a way that it becomes not just a, you know, almost mind-numbing experience, but one that does invite the audience into this imaginative world and gives them this experience. I think it's definitely possible with film and, and happens when a film is well done. And so I think that Lewis's comments make him sound very kind of anti-film. We're really, you know, I think we can agree that a bad film can be in many ways, you know, has its unique badness. And, you know, unlike a bad book that you just kind of put down because it's not worth the effort, a bad film sometimes, you know, is still engrossing and captures your attention. And so in that way, you know, there might be greater dangers in film than in, in bad literature, meaning bad, like low quality. We will now return to the Sunrise Morning Show.